Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on The Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 39, One Does Not Simply Shoot Gollum. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. Time it was impeccable. It just came out of me. <laughs> As it always does. Okay. There's another one. Hopefully that's the last one for today. Uh we're in Mordor now. Solidly in Mordor. Frodo is no longer locked up. He's been liberated, and they're now making their way towards Mount Doom. Uh while trudging their way through extremely difficult to understand geographies that we will try to elucidate for you uh in this uh in this here recording. Uh, so let's jump right into it. Um... <laughs> I'm looking at like my book, which let's has burp. the map as the little inlay here. Um, because when you said that they got closer to Mount Doom in this chapter, I had a moment where I was like, did they? Did they? Is even... that true? Did they actually? Yeah, it's unclear to us, the readers. It's also unclear to Frodo and Sam. They because they didn't. They don't have a map. Is something that mm-hmm. we learn. Yeah. Wait. Okay. So they talk about how Frodo like looked at this map in Rivendell, and that that's mm-hmm. all he is basing all of this on. Why didn't they give him the map? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> or he could well, have gotten a copy. <laughs> Yeah, why didn't they make a copy of the map and give it to him? Really? They just were like, you can look at this for five minutes, memorize it. I mean, also, yeah. if I was Frodo, like, a map would have been, like, number one on list of things to steal from Aragorn before I was striking out on my own. Or things yeah. to ask Galadriel for. Oh my god! <laughs> this is just gonna be the whole episode. <laughs> well, okay, in in Frodo's defense, kind of, I think the biggest issue here, because the geography of Mordor, like, is not that complicated, at least not the parts that they're traversing. The bigger issue is that they keep looking down into the plains and being like, oh, fuck, there's a fucking army here. We probably shouldn't go that way. And so then they have to, like, reroute. If they could go as the crow flies, like, we know that they can see the mountain, from where they're at and so it's not really that they're getting lost it's just that they keep having to reroute because there's like outposts and army camps and stuff that's not going to be on a map because it's presumably temporary that's getting in their way yeah who knows what sauron is thinking here no at one point it says sauron turned his eye inward so he's got he's that was a funny visual (laughs) <laughs> he's meditating um, just on it just the eye like <laughs> sucking into itself one of the things I thought was so interesting about looking at the map staring trying to figure out what these different parts were was that I realized how much Mordor is like the state of Washington in that everything important <laughs> is going on in the very upper left hand corner and it's all <laughs> really really close to Gondor I mean, I do also wonder if it's, like, resource management a little bit, right? As, like, you think about, well, where are the places where 
it's easier to farm and where are the pieces like the places where it's easier to have like administrative or like like cities basically right mm. like there are certain things you need for farmland and there are certain like environmental geographical things that it makes it easier to have like cities or fortresses versus farmland and so it kind of makes sense that he would put like all of the major fortresses along the mountain range because that's your you've already got built-in defenses in the forms of mountains right as opposed to <laughs> and being a volcano like, oh, no, we're gonna put our fort by the lake for a beachside you know beachside defense um, and i guess as long as he is an eye it makes sense to put the eye closest to where it can see the most yeah yeah mm-hmm. plus like i mean I, I assume that there's some meaning behind him his his like main fortress being so close to mount doom right like there's something about mount doom that he wants to keep an eye on probably right right yeah that was the other thing that was interesting to me like there's these two things baradur and mount doom are very close together uh why is that (laughs) yeah we haven't really explored mount doom as a character in this series yet but maybe we should i mean maybe like why do people settle anywhere though right as you look at resources but then you also look at like (laughs) sometimes people do stuff and you're like really you chose to live there, right next to the giant deadly volcano, and people are like, yes, we did. I say living next to a giant deadly volcano. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it happens on a fairly regular basis, I think, that people... I was just talking to somebody <laughs> about um, a family they know where, like, their family has had, a like, a cottage somewhere in the northeast part of the country and basically because of erosion like at least three times in the last 150 years they've had to just pick up the whole cottage and move it further inland wow so like people do dumb shit like that i mean not (laughs) dumb shit right because it's sentimental or whatever but (laughs) presumably it's also partially for the view that you are afforded yeah, I mean, it's but... not always, like, fully logical why people <laughs> settle in a particular place. I was just oh. confused because it's relatively close to, like, all of Gondor's seats of power, right? It's, like, it's mm-hmm. kind of, it seems like kind of bold geography, um, all things considered. But I didn't really know the history of, like, when certain things got built or, like, you know, did does Baradur mm-hmm. precede Minas Morgul? Well, but, like, Minas Morgul was not a a Mordor That's what I'm creation, saying. Like, right? Right. Right. Minas Morgul was, like, a Gondor creation. Yeah. It just seems kind of odd. I mean, if I, if I had, like, if I had enemies with virtual nukes at my doorstep, I would pack up and I'd move the capital inland. Yeah. I guess the, the counterpoint is that looking at this map, there's kind of a secondary ring of mountains around... Barad-dûr, so maybe it felt more defensible because it's the most enclosed of any place in Mordor. Right. The moral of the story is that we have almost no geographic specificity on this map about what Mordor actually looks like. The most that we're ever going to get is in this chapter. Yeah. Um, um, I wanted to, go, to yeah. go back to what you were saying about Mount Doom being a character, though, because something that I noticed in this chapter was like 
that Tolkien was really using the landscape uh, and things that were happening in it to like further the plot. Um, like yeah, totally. For example, when Sam suddenly sees like you know the clouds are shifting and he knows that and, and like the air becomes a little bit fresher and that signifies mm-hmm. that like Sauron has is like not winning maybe. I thought that was an interesting choice because well, well two things. One I the what he's trying to convey here is this like utter despair that Frodo and Sam are experiencing. And by giving them these like moments of hope that are not really like a thing that would happen realistically, right? He's just kind of forcing this into the narrative just so they kind of know what's going on. Um, I feel like it kind of detracts from that despair that they're experiencing because like it gives them another reason to keep going, right? I didn't like that. I thought I thought it was just like very forced. Interesting. I feel oh. like without that, I would have like really dragged myself through this chapter. And yeah, maybe that's I, why I, it's there. I mean, because otherwise it's pretty grim. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. No, and I think I fall more with Wanda on this one. I liked those little moments, like that particular moment, right? Which the, I think the reason I liked it is that it's a very clear, it comes from something, right? It doesn't feel like, oh, the wind is blowing and the sun is rising just because Tolkien decided that they needed a moment of hope. It's meant to be kind of this grounding moment of these things are happening because we know that they're happening somewhere else. Like the wind blowing is very specifically a thing that gets referenced multiple times when Aragorn comes to save the day at Gondor. Sans and ghost so, army. What? Sans ghost army. <laughs> Yes, right. Uh, when he comes like a total slacker, having let his ghost army go <laughs> to save the day at Gondor less efficiently than he could have. Um, yeah, there's the little asterisks. So, like to me, that makes sense then because it's kind of like it is a moment of hope, right? And it does, I think, put into contrast too. Like Sam gets inspired by these things. Sam is reminded that there is hope, and Frodo, by contrast, is like. I still don't have any hope left. And so we kind of see that difference between them, which I think we can assume is the result of the ring's influence. So I think there's kind of that like character piece that happens as a result, but it's also a, hey, let us orient you to what is happening out in the broader world because we can get really like kind of focused in on Frodo and Sam and the slog and it, you lose track then I think of the fact that this other stuff is happening and the other stuff does still matter. But he, even if they don't know it, he already clues you into that. Sorry. Hmm? I was just going to say he, he already like tells you that other stuff is, I mean, he just, he says Theoden dies right now. And, and then like a little bit later, the witch King just died. Like he tells you that that's happening. I guess, like, the the problem I had with this particular scene was I was just like, this wouldn't happen. Like, if you were in a battle and the tides of the battle started changing, the entire environment around you wouldn't respond to that. <laughs> like, that's... Babe, I don't know how to tell you that this is a magical story where people have already fought, like, ancient demons. I know, I and, know. Uh, I guess none of like... that can really happen. No, well, I know. Hang, hang on, hang just, on. Time, time yeah. out, though. Like, so why, so, okay, so the weather changes because of, like, the change in uh, the fortunes of the battle. And is that, that's, isn't that because Sauron is, 
he kind of like loses his mojo for a minute and is not able to really maintain the level of gloom that he normally maintains. I mean, are we just like, does he control the weather of Mordor? Is that established? Yeah, I think I that's kind of thought so. I think Sauron controls the weather. Oh, I mean, just period. <laughs> All weather. <laughs> He's the <Yeah>. weatherman. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like it's pretty established that the like obscuring fog that covers Mordor is an intentional thing that Sauron does. Yeah. And I actually really I liked it. I, I guess I liked it because, you know, it's sort of like turns the, the narration into this sort of black and white film where like the, the default the default is that you're everything is mon- like monotonous, right? Like you're walking across Mordor and like everything is really bad and there's these thorns and ah, uh, and that then every once in a while there's a change in the weather and that just kind of helps to like regulate the pace of things that are going on. And like Ashani was saying, it like it creates these sort of these excuses for Sam to have a thought or Frodo to have a thought. And I thought that worked. Um, I wasn't super bothered by wondering why the weather was changing, although maybe that's like something that you think about Navia because you're a more astute like lore reader and you're like bothered <laughs> by whether it's coming from Sauron or coming from Galadriel as is at one point implied. <laughs> I think I actually almost would have preferred it if it was not coming from anyone. If it just like happenstance, mm. you know, the sun came out for a second and it had nothing to do with what was going on in the battle elsewhere or, or influenced by anyone. It was just like a thing that happened that gave Sam hope. Like I think I would have preferred that to like this idea that the entire environment is responding to what is going on on a battlefield in Gondor. I just didn't Mm -hmm. like that idea. So then when you say that, I wonder, did you like better the bit where Sam goes outside and looks at the stars and gets like hope or reassurance from that? Yeah, that was cute. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I did enjoy that. It's not the problem. Like the problem I have isn't that Sam is like finding reasons to mm-hmm. hope like that is adorable i find that great it's just that i it's fa- that you're just not sure this... what's going on with the weather and it feels random <laughs> i just need to know how the weather works yeah, it, yeah it's like it... <laughs> no it's I, I, it just felt like a really like forced plot device to me to have that be like oh like i don't know how mm-hmm. to give sam hope so like i don't know i guess the clouds cleared <laughs> like yeah well agree to disagree yeah. I guess, like, one thing yeah. we all did agree on is that there's this little paragraph at one point where uh, he throws in, and this is actually just as the clouds are beginning to, like, clear away in, in Mordor, and Tolkien has a paragraph that I'm going to painstakingly pull up now so that I can read the whole oh, thing. Oh, I've got it. It you was wanna... the morning of the 15th of March, and over the Vale of Anduin, the sun was rising above the eastern shadow, and the southwest wind was blowing. They had and lay dying on the Pelennor fields. But you didn't like it, right? Oh, I liked it. Yeah. No, oh, I thought, okay. I thought it was great. Because... It's a passage that sounds straight out of All Quiet on the Western Front, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, and it, it feels like something that um, it comes very naturally to Tolkien. Like, it simultaneously reads like he pounded that out in about five seconds. And also, like, it is, it's kind of winched in there unnaturally. Like, he was forced at gunpoint to do that by his editor because the editors <laughs> editor were like, was like, what day is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at last we know. It's March. There are so many, there are so many, like, different, like, allusions to what's going on in different places in The Return of the King, whereas there were, like, none in the two towers at all. Um, and you just kind of have to assume that, like, Somebody was like writing angry fan letters, or like some editor was like, "This has to change." J.R.R.T. 
<laughs> also, I just realized Theoden dies on the Ides of March, um, which feels like a very particular and kind of hilarious choice. Yeah, that's a also, choice. Also, like, with what you were saying, Ashani, about how this is, like, a magical and fantasy world and it doesn't follow the rules, but then there's, like, the same calendar dates, like, <laughs> what... <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, apparently March is a constant. <laughs> it's always March. Yeah. No. No, but I, I I mean, I did really like that. It was nice to finally be like, oh, okay, so this is happening in spring. I genuinely did not know until this point. But I also, for some reason, thought that, like, we had already gotten to the point where Aragorn's army was at the gates of Mordor. And so this, like, reset my expectations quite nicely. Yeah. Well, and I think this gives time, right, for, like, that Mithril shirt that got taken off Frodo to make its way to the mouth of Sauron, to make its way to be dramatically thrown in front of Aragorn. In By the... a golem, somehow? No, 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 that was a different chainmail shirt. Oh. So after he loses the Mithril shirt, Sam goes <laughs> and finds him before they leave a to- the tower a different, like, an orc chainmail shirt. And then at the beginning of this chapter, Frodo's like, I don't care how much it might protect me. It's too heavy and I'm so tired. I have to take it off. Which is exactly my feeling about wearing polyester <laughs> in the summer. Yes. And so they leave behind that chainmail shirt and that's the one that Gollum okay. finds to catch their trail. I was very confused by that. Yeah. No, I also no, thought that it was the Mithril so many shirt mithril at first. Shirts. And I was like, wow, they're fucked. Gollum's got the Mithril shirt. <laughs> This guy's invincible. He doesn't Call need the ring anymore. now is bulletproof. <laughs> yeah. That would have been bad. Um, bulletproof Gollum. Let me ask yeah. you guys one thing. Do you, So, at this point, um, Sauron is thinking a lot about Aragorn. Um, the chapter actually, like, the, the third-person narrator actually says this. His mind was fixated on the this king of Gondor. Do you guys think that he... Do you think... Do you guys think that he thinks that Aragorn has the ring, and if so, why does it seem like such a big deal that he, that his orcs keep an eye on Frodo? Because it's mm. implied in the chapter that, like, a lot of people are going to get fired or killed because Frodo escaped. I also think that, like, Sauron at this point thinks that Frodo doesn't have the ring because he's been captured, he's been, like, stripped of all his possessions and mm-hmm. no ring and they don't know that there's another hobbit so at this point sarah might think the problem is dealt with or someone else has the ring mm-hmm. interesting like, maybe aragorn i don't know right, right. so frodo he, is yeah. then a source of information like you know, mm. i'd be pissed about losing him because maybe he's the person who could tell you where the ring has gone mm. right. right interesting that they don't think that Gollum has the ring but they've captured him, right? The orcs captured him again for like the 18th time and then lost him again. <laughs> keep for, letting like, the this guy go. <laughs> I genuinely, uh, the number of times that Gollum has been captured and escaped, like we should have had a counter. I love how it's in this chapter so they times. were just like, we shot him and he just kept <laughs> <Okay>. going. <laughs> yeah. I Like literally like Gollum is the comic relief in these books. He's not treated like it in the text. <laughs> Nor really in the movies. But I can imagine, like, let me pitch you this. Let me pitch you a different Lord of the Rings movie where instead of making cute, like, jokes about, like, Gollum occasionally, like, being nasty with the way he eats, they instead just do, like, a vaudevillian routine of every single time 
Gollum escapes from the orcs, the rangers, the elves, and anyone else. A Scooby-Doo sequence of him, like, running back and forth between doors. Right. And he always does it with, like, a signature move. And then at the end of the movie, Sam says this line, When I think of that stinker, I get so hot I could shout. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, That's a real line, folks, from the book. (laughs) Yeah. Put it on a t-shirt. I deliberated whether to bring this up on the on the podcast today because it's it's almost too much for me to think about. But yeah, Sam really does say about Gollum, when I think of that stinker, I get so hot I could shout, which, oh my God. There's just a lot to unpack there. <laughs> it's just so sexual. 200K enemies to lovers slow burn when? <laughs> <laughs> what? What does that even mean? I don't, I don't even know what you just said. It's okay. That is for the listeners who, if you know, you know. Um, Damn, I don't know. I wish I knew. All right. Anyway, yeah. When I hear, when I think of that stinker, I get so hot I could shout. Um, let's talk about the Sam and Frodo. Line in my diary. <laughs> it's just that just over and over I again, die. like the all work and no play thing. Um, yeah. Uh, let's talk about Sam and Frodo a little bit. Um, Frodo. Uh, takes a depressive turn in this chapter. Yeah, I I think this is why I remember, like, I had such a negative view of Frodo coming out of these books. And it's not because I don't like Frodo for most of the books. I find him, like, he's not my favorite character, I think, pretty much at any point. But he's not annoying or offensive either for most of the books but then at this point now that Sam has rescued him and he's gone through or I mean he has like he's gone through some harrowing experiences there's definitely the implication that he was tortured a little bit by the orcs before Sam was able to get him out but wow he is so pessimistic yeah he and has like, like a thousand yard stare at this point yeah and like really outspokenly pessimistic at this point. And so the fact that Sam is, like, putting up with it when Frodo is basically just like, I wonder when we're going to get caught and horribly killed. I think part of the problem is that the device that Tolkien has chosen, like the ring itself, right, to be Mm -hmm. the, the big burden that Frodo is carrying, is inherently not relatable to the reader because we can't imagine a physical thing that you have to carry around like having this kind of effect on you right yeah. like it's easier to imagine i think if a character like like you mentioned torture right like typically if i've read a book where a character has gone through some like traumatic experience and then they like take this depressive turn like it's easier for me as a reader to understand why they would be in that mindset and like why everything would seem so hopeless but in this case it's like yes he has been through a lot but still the thing that is weighing him down is the ring. And we just don't have a reference point for what that would feel like. One counterpoint is that, so he has been, he's been captured and tortured and now he's been released. And his attitude is depressive, but not so much depressive as it is just a little bit remote. Like he'll say things like when they see like the massive encampment of orcs and men on the plains, Frodo says, well, this is really bad, but it's only, it's not any worse than I thought it would be. 
this is exactly what I expected coming in here. So it's like he's he's shifted to Nell, like talking about how he always knew that it was going to end terribly, and they just they just kind of have to keep going, which is like, all right, good for you on the realistic assessment, but also, uh, you know, you're really putting it all on Sam to be positive at this point. And yeah, I guess what I'm coming around to is maybe maybe that's like the maybe that's the effect of the ring that we can really isolate. It's not that Frodo's like depressed but he's just tired it's like it is so heavy that he can't really do any thinking at this point like other than yeah this is really bad and I always knew it was going to be really bad yeah I think you're right Wanda because it's if he was really truly absent any hope he wouldn't say well we should keep going anyways but I think in some ways that's almost more frustrating for me like personally right and I fully admit like this is a personal thing But it's really hard for me when people are, like, continuously voicing all of this negativity and it feels like what they're looking for is for someone else to, like, reassure them or tell them that things are going to be okay or, like, shore them up emotionally without, like, saying that's what they're doing. Wow. How are you still friends with me? (laughs) Well... Well, no, um, because you don't you don't really like I'm thinking about the people who will like go on social media and be like, well, I'm just absolute garbage and I know nobody wants to hear from me and I know nobody likes me. And it's like, well, why are you you're putting that on social media because there's a part of you that's hoping for some reassurance or there's a part of you that's like getting rewarded when people then message you back and say like no people do like you but it doesn't you don't have any change like you're just kind of stuck in that pattern and I guess I can see echoes of that in Frodo and so for me that's evoking like a really strong negative response towards him that's maybe disproportionate to his actual circumstance which is you know obviously a little different. Well, I think also Frodo and Sam have different goals in their mind that they're trying to get to. Frodo is trying to get to Mount Doom and destroy the ring, and he has absolutely no hope of returning to his normal life or to the Shire. Like, that's gone Mm -hmm. at this point. He's just going still, like, in case they can still get to Mount Doom. Sam, I think, is still harboring hope that they're going to make it home. And it just, like, that is reflected in like Frodo thinks that you know this is it for him and Sam Mm -hmm. is like no we're gonna make it back and I think like that's because they're kind of marching towards different goals like we see the tone being different between them yeah I think you're right and that's part of why Sam is always like really practical about food and water like Frodo keeps like not realizing realizing that they don't have any food left or water left and Sam keeps going Mm -hmm. to find the water yeah well, I mean, and as you two are talking, the thing I'm thinking about is, like, Frodo's goal of reaching Mount Doom probably wouldn't have happened if he hadn't had Sam, who's hoping to make it home. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, the things, because the things, like, no, who's Frodo making sure on they Sam. have food and who's making sure they have water. And so there's, like, again, that sense of, yeah, you're so stuck in, like, thinking you're this is it and thinking you're not going to make it out of this that like you actually wouldn't have even made it to your goal most likely if not for the person who hoped enough that you would survive it you know the funny thing is like good 
Oh, I was going to say, I I don't, I didn't find Frodo's attitude in this chapter depressing because all things considered, especially considering that he started out with an entire fucking fellowship and he made it to Mordor. I was kind of like, mm-hmm. good on you. Like, if you haven't stopped to like say that you're proud of yourself, like you should. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't <laughs> like I think I'm more on Ishani's page here of like I I remember originally reading these books and just being exhausted by Frodo as a whole and I'm mm-hmm. still kind of feeling that way. Um not to say that I can't, you know, see why he feels the way he feels. Like it it right. seems like a valid uh a valid head state at this point where given everything that's happened. But it is just like a slog to read about. <laughs> You're just kind of like, like, do we have to do this? You know? Um, I mean, what I will say is like, to me, it feels very clear. We're seeing the beginnings of what will lead to schism and conflict between them. Right. That even if Gollum never came back into the picture, like I could see this sort of different end goals. Like you were saying, Navia, like, that's going to be the point that ends up breaking them a little bit. Because I think if I was in Sam's shoes, caring for somebody who doesn't care whether or not they make it, like at some point, how does that not break you a little? Well, I mean, and yeah. it, it's, it's to some extent, like it's not just that Frodo doesn't care if Frodo makes it. At this point, he doesn't care if Sam makes it either. Like, mm-hmm. and that would be really hard, I think, when you're, I mean, especially when you're putting in as much work and effort as Sam is to, like, make this happen and, like, get them there and get them home to just see someone, like, give up on themselves and on you in that way, yeah. I think would be really difficult. Yeah. that's a, I, I guess you guys are right. I hadn't really thought about it this way before, but Sam is really shifting between, like, five different kinds of supportive labor in helping Frodo mm-hmm. out. Like, last chapter, he was, like, killing orcs in the tower, and now he's just trying to keep general morale up and not think about how his master doesn't care if he lives or dies. Sam is doing all the emotional labor in this relationship right now. And, and a fair amount of the physical labor too. Yeah. He's also going to end up hauling Frodo's ass up this mountain. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but I mean, I th- that's something that I think like we don't get. The conflict in the movies is much more centered around Gollum rather than it being about kind of the difference in perspectives that they take on. And in some ways, I'm like, I, the conflict around Gollum is interesting, but I I find something very compelling about conflict that's driven from two people, like, seeing themselves and seeing their futures in very different ways. It would have been better if maybe they had not put that on Gollum in the movies and instead used Gollum as a vaudevillian routine. <laughs> yes. You guys, what if Gollum isn't even real and it's just a personification of the tension between Frodo and Sam at all times? Whoa. I love Whoa. it. <laughs> Come uh, at us, Lord of the Rings, Reddit no, conspiracy I, I really liked what you said, Ashani, about like how it probably wouldn't even matter if Gollum like showed up or not. Where like I can totally mm-hmm. see this scene of Frodo standing in Mount Doom, like refusing to throw the ring in, and Sam having this like total breakdown of like how are we going to go home if he doesn't do this? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it feels like even if Gollum had never showed up, at some point they're going to hit a crisis point 
where what they want and like what they're working towards are just fundamentally incompatible because Sam wants to get them both home and Frodo doesn't care. Why do you guys think that Tolkien keeps Gollum around as a character? Just given that, like, you guys are making really good points to the effect of it's not really necessary for the character building between Sam Mm -hmm. and Frodo at this point. Like, the relationship building. And there's, like, other devices that you can use to make sure that ring gets into Mount Doom. Maybe he just keeps Gollum around to, like, you know, because he likes the idea of Gollum going into Mount Doom and that character needs a wrap-up. But Mm -hmm. what do you guys think? What if he had, like, left him out? What if, like, What if they had just killed off Gollum in some kind of normal way? I don't think that Gollum exists to, like, I don't think the purpose of including Gollum here is anything to do with Frodo and Sam's relationship. I think he's trying Mm -hmm. to tell a different story with Gollum's character. And it's the story of, like, how a very small and unimportant creature or being could have an outsized impact on the world and what happens and I think there's something, like, really interesting about this world full of, like, huge political machinations and the and the grandiose plans of, like, these villains and heroes. And then, like, this one guy who just kind of wants what he wants is the one who ends up having, like, the most impact. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about it that way before. But, yeah, you're right. It's, it's the self-interested character who is, like, torqued by the absence of any any intervening forces besides his own self-interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just Gollum going head to head with Sauron and everything else kind of <laughs> happens around that. Sauron like keeps capturing him and he keeps escaping. And he's like, what the actual <laughs> hell, dude? <laughs> I mean, and not just Sauron either. Like at the this elves. point, so many people yeah. <laughs> have captured Gollum. Frodo and Sam have technically captured Gollum and he has technically escaped from them. Like, is there a character in this book who hasn't captured Gollum and had him escape? No, like, Sauron, the orcs, the elves, Shelob, Aragorn, like, they all yeah. at some point, like... Yeah, we're all just living in Gollum's world right now. <laughs> it's it's fun, like, Gollum is also the only character where there's, like, he's definitely not an analogy for anything. Like, mm-hmm. he's not, like, the hero with a thousand faces, um, I don't think he really represents an archetype. Um, I don't know why we're talking about Gollum right now. This is just interesting to me. <laughs> He's like barely but in this chapter, but I've seen I've seen exactly one other story that I felt like had a Gollum character in it, and it's still not a very good analogy. But it's this Martin Scorsese movie called Silence, where there's like an an apostate um, person of the faith that like goes around like uh, like just switching switching teams, switching sides like throughout the movie, and mm-hmm. it's like it resembles Gollum I keep burping it resembles Gollum to me because like this character really like whenever you see him on screen you just feel this like massive anxiety about like your own your own convictions and your own actions and that's also mm-hmm. like how I feel whenever Gollum shows up I'm like I feel like just really I don't know like embarrassed by association even through fiction yeah, I'm trying to think of like other Gollum-esque characters nothing is really coming to mind are there no other golems? Is there a golem in Harry Potter? That's what I was trying to think. Dobby. Of. It, it's it's not Dobby. <laughs> no, it's not Dobby. Maybe it's like Wormtail. Yeah, maybe. Kind of, but not really. Yeah, I'm trying to think about if there's one in like any of the Star Wars universes, and I don't really 
think so. Maybe uh, to tie it up, like we can maybe we can say that this is just my theory that that it's important that Gollum is not redeemed. He, he is redeemed, but only because he dies, and he dies along with the ring. And I wouldn't even call that a redemption. Yeah, yeah I would just, just call like that he, death. Yeah, it's just more of a yeah, it's a death. But I guess it's a redemption in the sense that it's um, we are redeemed by not having to think about Gollum anymore. <laughs> like that's one of the most satisfying parts of the end of the story. Maybe even more satisfying than the ring being thrown into Mount Doom is like, well, thank God Gollum is over. You don't have to think about that anymore. And that feels like uh, that feels like salvation, and it feels like Jarrah Tolkien trying to like, tie up our emotional narrative for us. Maybe that's why the character ends up the way he does. Yeah, you guys are just shrugging. Let's talk about something else. You want to do quick fire? Shani, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, my quick fire is that some orcs show up, and as always, when orcs show up, I kind of love them. Not in the sense that I think they are good people, but in the sense that anytime orcs are on the page, they even when they've only got like a couple of sentences, as is the case in this instance, they show up for like two pages and then one of them kills the other and runs off. Um, but they're so like they give us so much every time they show up because we learn from them the whole thing about Gollum escaping and being on Sam and Frodo's trail. But one of the things we learned this time around is, like, and it's always something about kind of the functioning of Mordor and the functioning of Sauron's rule. And in this case, it's that some orcs are Team Nazgul and others are like, fuck the Nazgul, which is just a really interesting dynamic that I loved. It's such a little thing. It like, It's a throwaway line, but I noticed it and I liked it. And I like the orcs when they show up. They're my favorites. They're so developed, and it shows that Tolkien has no problem creating dramatic tension between characters that you don't know a lot about and, like, building characters through interactions, which, as Mm -hmm. we talked about, like, in, quote-unquote, season one, uh, is not something that he had any, displayed any flair for doing with our Fellowship characters. Um, No. It is really amazing how much you can see, like, his writing skill develop through this series. Yeah. Yeah. Does it feel like no, the, the Nazgul is sort of like a big new technology, like where like you can imagine that if you're, you know, it, 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 at like any job, like when a when a fancy new technology is brought in, some mm-hmm. people like it, some people hate it. Well, you know what? So maybe a better analogy is it's like, okay, here's the like tenured professors in academia and for some reason they're still getting all of the say, even though they barely teach any classes and they're just there to make the university look good, and they're not doing any of the real work, but they have all of the input. Well, that's perfect. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I think that's like a really that's a really good analogy. But <laughs> they've got tenure, <laughs> <laughs> right? And the orcs are all of these like adjunct professors who are making like three thousand dollars a semester and yeah, don't have any students. sort of. Yeah, like, they don't have any sort of job prospects. They have very little capacity for advancement. They know they're basically cannon fodder more often than not. And they look at the Nazgul and they're like, why should I have to listen to you? Like, why do you get to have all of this power and all of this say? Other than the fact that you have a dragon that could probably murder me in about half a second. I really wish these orc dynamics had made it more into the movies because, like, this would have been hilarious to see on screen. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, really illuminating. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I feel like you learn so much. Like, it is the political, not even political, but, like, the interpersonal administrative situation in Mordor is just as complex as anything that's happening on the other side of the mountains, if not more so. And the only time we ever really get a sense of that is through the orcs, because they're the only characters we ever really get to see talk about it. Yeah. What were All your right. quick fires? Um, um, you, mine real quick was, uh, yeah, mine was like, mine was also about Sauron. Uh, and it was, there was a passage where there, uh, the, the third person narrator clues us in as to how food ends up in Mordor to feed mm-hmm. the armies of of Sauron. And it's all stuff that comes in from these client states to the south and the east. And that was really interesting to me because it made me realize like just how much none of this could happen if Sauron had not spent like presumably decades or hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years, building these like predatory relationships with these states to the south. And in the movie, they kind of give this lip service when, like, they shoot that that member of the Haradrim from uh, on top of the elephant, and they go they go mm-hmm. over and Faramir makes a little speech about how maybe he's not actually evil at heart, and that comes from the books too. But there was just that this really hit home to me reading this chapter that like, oh, if like Gondor and Rohan had gotten their shit together earlier, maybe you could have like stopped some of these relationships from being formed. Maybe like, and if they had diplomacy... been a little less racist. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, and I don't even think like it's it's not. I don't feel like I'm really stepping out of the like the logic of the Lord of the Rings canon and saying this. Like, this is just one of those things where, when we talk about Gondor having sat on its ass for like the last few hundred years, like this is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they did not intervene. Yeah. No, I think that's really reasonable because you're right. Like, it's definitely implied that. On its own, even with the like small amount of land that they are able to farm in Mordor, it's not enough to support armies of this size. They have to be importing like workers and foodstuffs from outside, and it like you're right that that's not a oh this just started three weeks ago kind of relationship. Right. What was your quick fire? Um. Mine was, okay, so there's a couple of times in this chapter where there were lines that I felt like were trying to be callbacks or references to other things, but it was like a little bit unclear on whether they were intentional or not. Mm -hmm. So the first one was when they're talking about, um, it's, it's like right at the beginning of the chapter and... Frodo says, we must get off this road somehow. And Sam says, but we can't, not without wings. And I was like, eagles? I noticed that too. Eagles! Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is this supposed to just be like dropping this foreshadowing for the eagles? But it's such a throwaway line and I can't even tell if it's intentional or not. Or mm-hmm. if it's a reference to the fact that they've just seen this like fell beast fly over their head. Like, what? Do you, I don't know. Do you guys think this was intentional? Okay, no, I'll, tell you about sure. the, yeah. I'll tell you about the second one, and then we can decide if either of them are intentional. So yeah. the second one is a little bit later on. Um, Frodo's deciding that his, ma- his chain mail is too heavy, and he wants to take it off. And Sam says, I don't like to think of you caught... or I don't like to think of you with not but a bit of leather between you and a stab in the dark. And I don't know why this, like, 
triggered something in my memory, but A Stab in the Dark is like pretty close to a chapter title from the Fellowship that's called A Knife in the Dark, where Frodo does get stabbed by a ring wraith. Uh, and it's before he has the mithril shirt, so he does not have not but not but what what is this phrasing? Nothing but a bit of leather, basically. Um, and, and I couldn't tell again if like it's not quite the same, but it's similar enough that it like reminded me to look look that up. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is Tolkien a good enough writer that these are intentional? <laughs> I think it I, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think that it's it's one of two things happening. Either Tolkien is like intentionally crafting these callbacks or call forwards, or he is just the kind of person that has these things in his mind and he uses them over and over again, but like rarely enough that they do feel like um I don't know, how do I say it? Like sophisticated in how they are repeated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I thought like I think is like kind of cool either way. The Eagles yeah. one, I think, is, like, especially, um, I didn't catch that the first time around, but I think that does, like, kind of, like, lubricate the introduction of the Eagles in the next couple chapters, um, because it just kind of puts that in your mind. Mm-hmm. I think my I sense think it, is that it no, wasn't necessarily intentional in the sense that Fro- in uh, Frodo, that Tolkien wrote these things and went, ah, yes, this is very specifically a call to the eagles coming, or even that um, the thing about the stab in the dark. To me, that's indicating betrayal, right? And, of course, we know that Gollum is mm. going to find them again, and Frodo is going to get kind of betrayed. That's a good point. Um, but having said that, I think I kind of fall along the a little bit what you were saying, Wanda, where... When you've been writing a story like this, it's not necessarily a conscious pattern making, but I think you do, like, in the same way that we catch those patterns, the human brain likes patterns and likes follow through. And I think it's entirely possible that there was sort of a subconscious, like, layering in of some of these things. And we know that... I think the reason I don't want to say it's conscious is because Tolkien has done this before. He did this a lot in Fellowship in particular, where he would end a section with a character dropping a dramatic statement and it just kind of would end very abruptly and then go on to the next section of the story. And and a lot of those didn't feel like they were callbacks or call forwards to any, like they weren't foreshadowing. They were just Mm -hmm. Tolkien not knowing how conversations end. Um, (laughs) And at this point, my sense is that I don't think, right? I don't think it was intentional, but I do think there might have been a subconscious connection for him that led to that pattern showing up. Yeah, I, I think I probably agree with both of you on on that kind of second take where, especially with the Eagles thing, I can see a situation where it's like he's decided that this is going to be a factor in the story already. And he, it's just like on his mind and he's thinking about it as he's writing. And so it just kind of appears. Yeah. 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 He might just, he might also just feel like I didn't really get like enough mileage out of that one phrase. Like I like that a lot. Yeah, that, that could be true. Which I feel like is also. why the songs are in the, in the book for the most part. A lot of the song mm-hmm. lines come back over and over or like introduce concepts that come back in. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Tolkien's really a master at like remixing some of the same images and like concepts over and over and over. 
Yeah, honestly, when we were recording, when we were recording this and like we were talking about the geography of Mordor and stuff, I was like, haven't we talked about this before? Because I think we've had a chapter before in which we were like introduced to not maybe Mordor itself, but like the land just outside of it. And we talked a bit about that geography. And yeah, he definitely like recycles some of the same concepts here. And we're just like, ooh. A new one. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, everything, especially Brambles. It's an extremely mm-hmm. Bramble-heavy trilogy. <laughs> but it's okay. Because we, we're we still here. Just like Frodo. Waiting our no way choice. through the thorns. We have no hope. There's no way we're going to succeed. Or make it home. But we're still out here. And... Listeners, we will. All right, I'm done. See you next week. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. Friendship over. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Wanda. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to.